Welcome to the Back Pain Podcast with Rob and Dave, the only show geared specifically to help educate you about your back pain. We talk to the experts to bust the myths, break down the science, and give you all the top tips for living pain-free. So if you're driving to work, tidy in the house, or even laid up at home in pain, we have something for everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Back Pain Podcast. Today we are joined by Professor Kieran O'Sullivan. Professor O'Sullivan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Rob. You are giving me too many uh, titles, by the way, as well. Uh, it's at the very most doctor, but Kieran is more than enough for that. But thanks. Delighted <laughs> to be here. Okay, Kieran. So, uh, as our listeners have heard in the introduction, you were the co-author of a paper or, or an editorial last last year entitled 10 Facts Everyone Should Know About Back Pain. Now, before we go into each fact in a little bit more detail, why do you feel that these 10 facts or these messages were so important to, for patients to hear? So one of the things I think that I'll try and get across in this podcast is that I think that every person with back pain is a little bit different. Having said that, there are some common themes and common stories that we hear people say um, and so we wanted to get across that for a range of people, there are some common stories we hear that are important bits of information. So it's very common that we hear people being very worried that daily activities are dangerous or that their scan means that their future is bleak. And so notwithstanding the fact that everybody's a little different, these were some common recurring themes that we hear with lots of patients in the clinic that we felt would be good for the community as a whole to hear. Perfect. So I think let's jump straight into it um, with kind of the fact number one or the the myth number one, which is persistent back pain is scary, but that it's actually rarely dangerous. So rarely it's a serious problem. Would you like to start off by kind of elaborating on on fact number one? Sure. Now, the key thing here is when we talk about serious in the medical physio world, we mean, could this be a fracture, a broken bone, a cancer something that could leave the person paralyzed or needing urgent medical attention. And that's, it's important to state right out that that's pretty rare. So if you look at the population as a whole, you're probably talking about maybe 1% of people, like a one in a hundred chance. And then, you know, when you look at people who've had pain for a couple of years and it's dragging on, it's even less likely. So I'm not in any way wanting to make it seem like, therefore it's no big deal because pain can be terribly stabling and be serious in terms of the quality of life. But it means that for most people, your back pain, no matter how bad it is, does not mean you have a chance of being paralyzed or that it indicates a scary medical condition. I think that's a really important point because when you know we talk about, you know, as healthcare professionals, that oh, it, it's nothing serious. And it can often come across like we're undermining someone's pain if we don't explain it well enough. So that's a really good point that, yeah, when we're saying it's nothing serious, it means that, yes, it, it may be you know, having a huge impact on your life, but it's nothing medically serious in terms of, you know, the things that you have described. And I, get, and I guess being honest, the reason I bring that up is I've made that mistake myself where I have tried to reassure and ended up probably dismissing the person's concerns. Yeah. I think, I think every medical professional has probably, probably done similar. Yeah. So I think that, you know, from my understanding, the kind of the current literature, you know, when you look in the evidence, it says around one to 2% of kind of all back pain is, you know, what we described as that serious pathology. So those, you know, the, the, the nasty things that, you know, we don't really want to, you know, we hope that people don't have. Is that similar to what, what your findings are, that kind of one, 1%? 
Yes, the numbers look like it's that low, that it's at around the 1% level. And again, it varies a little bit depending on the setting you're in. So, for example, there'd be some populations where you might be more concerned. If you saw, um, a, for example, a young child with unexplained, very um, unusual symptoms, you might be more likely to chase that down and order test than we would if you see somebody who's had, you know, very annoying, maybe disabling back pain for five years, but that it's never really changed in its severity or and it's not associated with any scary symptoms. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's again, it does exist. It does happen. But we don't, um, you know, you can have a headache and it can be a serious um, sign. But you would treat somebody presenting with an acute headache and neurological symptoms and maybe some changes in their speech pattern. You treat that very differently to somebody who says, I've had this headache on and off for a couple of years. No, that, that's exactly kind of what we've, we've covered on, on various things. You know, it's that there's lots of other symptoms as well, which medical professionals are, are trained to look for. And I guess when you look at different populations and different clinics, that number's going to change that one, two percent. So when you look at everyone, it's probably less. But if you zone in on people presenting to, you know, emergency departments or pain clinics or hospitals or pain, you know, you know, the, the physio's office, those type of things, then, you know, those people, if you look at those patients, it might be a slightly higher number. So it's going to be very different depending on the populations that you look at slightly absolutely and i i see a probably a bias sample of people where they have pain for quite a long period of time with maybe a couple of years uh, on average and sometimes people think that must be hard because that pain might be hard to change but equally it probably means that it's medically safer in terms of the, the you know if it was for example an aggressive cancer it would have emerged typically in that in the, in the space of two to three years good good Okay, let's move on to number two then, which I think is probably one of the biggest myths on this list, which is something that gets thrown around a lot. And, you know, you, we hear it hear it regularly in the clinic and that getting older is not a cause of lower back pain. And so is that something that you mean that, you know, patients come to us and they say, oh, oh, you know, I've got some back pain, but I'm now 65. So I assume that's just normal for, for my age. So are you saying that that's not the case? So the thing we've got to be clear of this is we'll say what we're particularly interested in is pain that becomes disabling and has a big impact on your quality of life. Now, almost every condition that we know of, your risk of picking it up as you go from your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s and into older age, you're going to pick it up at some point, probably, whether that's, you know, if you're going to pick up some breathing problems, some mobility difficulties and pain is like that. So, you know, the the likelihood of getting back pain by the time you're 70, it's a bit higher than it would have been when you were in your 20s and 30s. However, it's not an inevitable consequence of aging. So lots of people become old and they get better. And um, I guess what we're trying to get across here is that it's not inevitable. So for example, we've done some studies recently looking at older age adults, following them up over a couple of years, and we see some people where their pain gets worse, some people where their pain gets better. And what's critical to me is the people who went from having so these are all over 50. The people who were over 50 had pain. The people who got better were the people where their physical and mental health improved in the intervening years. So again, yes, for sure, as you get older, you might get a little bit more back pain, but it's not inevitable and it's not caused just by aging because if it was, there was nothing we could do about it. And of course, and then if it was caused by aging, then you know, we statistically see more back pain as you get older and everybody who's age 90 plus would have back pain when we know that that's not the case. Absolutely. So with when people are older, does the back pain get better as with younger people with back pain? You know, does it, you know, kind of go back to their normal 
you know, in the same type of time frames, or does it take longer to to recover from? I know it defines what we define as recovery, um, yeah. and what counts as better, but. Uh, so, so I got to be honest and say we don't know for sure. Now, one of the reasons we don't know for sure is that if you were going to do a proper study in this, you do studies like randomized control trials, where you give you know people two different treatments and you see, for example, do they respond well to a certain treatment? But in an awful lot of trials, if you're aged over sixty-five or under eighteen, you're excluded. So we, in a lot of uh, the trials of back pain, older adults are excluded just because they're old, almost. The idea being that we you know we'll protect them, but I would argue you've just um, left them outside the scientific study. Um, what we can say though is that nobody's shown that the um, the things that make people um, recover from back pain are any different. And the preliminary studies we've done, like we've been involved in um, analyzing papers from the Tilda study, which follows people every two years over a number of years, and it's exactly as you would expect. People when they're older can get um, back pain that gets better or gets worse. For the same um, range of risk factors that are involved. The, there's a, both a positive and a negative aspect, I suppose, to my suspicions. A negative aspect is that, unfortunately, as you're older, you're more likely to have other health complaints, breathing problems, frailty, um, you know, a range of other things. And the more health complaints you have, the more disabled you are and harder it is to fix your pain. So that's a negative aspect of aging and pain. As against that, Older adults typically can be physically deconditioned and they, while we've been sometimes hesitant to give them strength training, for example, they respond really well to it because their, their um, room for improvement is quite large because often they, often they have mild sarcopenia and they haven't been as active. So we have, while there might be complications in terms of, <clears throat> excuse me, in terms of health complications, they have great room for improvement. So anyone that's listening to this that is, you know, class, classifies themselves as an older adult, so I'm not going to put a, a, a number on that because I don't want people to uh, to offend anyone, should, t- should take some confidence from that, that, you know, that, you know, they have back pain. A, it's not because they are, they are of a certain age, but also they have also a good chance of getting better as well. It's not, yeah. a, it's not there for life and it's not going to just stay there just because they are 70 or any other age. Absolutely. And, uh, and we'll say the more we um, look at, I suppose, the, the potential to help people, um, the more we realise it applies to lots of different ages. So a lot of these studies talk about getting better. Um, I know we briefly just touched on that. What does count as better? So what do you know, the, the people like yourself, the researchers, when they're looking at, you know, people with back pain, are they looking at the pain reducing and or the pain going to zero? Or are they looking at better function, better quality of life or, or all of the above when someone says, you know, this intervention is you know, good for making back pain better? Yeah, it's um, it's a complication of the studies we've done because, you know, your definition in your study might have differed from mine. So sometimes it'll be just asking people on an arbitrary scale, if your pain was on a zero to 10 scale six, what's it now? Or it might have asked you, you know, you how are you getting on walking, standing and doing a range of tasks? But it's very variable. Now, so there's things researchers could do better where we agree on what recovery looks like. I suppose I would make two broad points. Number one is for me, recovery does not mean I have no zero back pain now and I will never get it again in my life because I'm going to take a a shot in the dark having never met Rob or Dave before that at some point you have had back pain and without being negative you will have some pain at some point in your future because it's a part of aging. So I don't think recovery we can really set as you will never have any pain in your life again. For me it's got to be much more around the impact on your life. 
But then secondly, when we talk about recovery, I think it's really important to think about the timelines. So for example, a mistake I've often made is told people factually correct information that when you get back pain, for most people, it will get better. But without clarifying that, that doesn't mean it gets better very quickly. And so I think, for example, one thing I've tried to get across to patients more clearly now is for acute back pain, where it's just started and it's very painful, that it will get better, but that the average recovery is around six weeks. So about half of people, it will take them about six weeks to be recovered if we define it by, define that by being back to doing everything and not having any pain. And the reason I bring that up is that I think I, as a clinician, um, didn't get that across to patients. And so I had patients who still had some pain four to five weeks after getting the pain for the first time, but because they'd still some pain, they thought they were recovering poorly and this was a bad sign when actually they were recovering perfectly well. It was just taking its time, which is normal and not a reason to you know, rush for scans or aggressive um, procedures. So just because a pain is taking slightly longer than you might have expected or than it says on the, that it says on the NHS website or something like that does not mean it's necessarily anything more serious. It just means that it's just taking its time sometimes and it can do that. Yeah, as long as we're heading in the right direction and as long as you're coping, there might be times when the person, we can come back to it, what can we do if they're still suffering? It's not saying that people should just suck it up for six weeks and 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 don't complain, it, but it's more around, well, how concerned should I be? And am I heading in the right direction, even if it's a bit slow? Good. So looking for that small change in improvement, however small, whether that's a reduction in stiffness in the morning, whether it's, a, you know, I, I can now get up the stairs in half the time I was before, or I can get in and out of the car. So it's looking for those little improvements. And I think that that's something I give to a lot of patients anyway, because it's really good for the psyche when you are, you know, often it's very hard to remember where you were. And so focusing on those little steps that actually I, I can now bend down and pick up my, my son. It wasn't, I can do that. Whereas two weeks ago, I wasn't able to do that. And sometimes people forget that. So focusing on those little positive wins is sometimes really beneficial for that long-term improvement. Absolutely. Good. So fact three is something that we have um, not spoken about in depth, but spoken about, just tried to get the message across uh, in in lots of different episodes. And that is um, pain is rarely associated with tissue damage or so you know, pain doesn't equal damage, I think is we what we've kind of phrased it as is on different episodes. Can you explain what, what you mean by this? Sure. And uh, I should preface this at the start by saying, if you are ever going to insult patients, uh, you know, um, by accident, it's in the next few sentences that you're likely to do it. Because it's important So sit down, to, everyone. Yeah, exactly. It's important to get across that this, um, this point does not mean in any way that there is nothing whatsoever at all that we could find in a scan in your back. What we're really trying to figure out here is if we um, if we look at all the factors going on in somebody's back pain, how confident are we that 100% of it is related to something in your back, such as a disc bulge or arthritis or so on? Um, because the complication here, like with a lot of tests, is that it's not as if we can do a test where we, like a, an MRI scan and we can clearly identify this person has pain and another person doesn't, because pain is not just about what we see in scans. So we're not saying that the tissues like discs and muscles and joints don't play some part. It's just that on average, the scans of people with and without pain aren't that different. Um, so we have to be cautious about trying to say pain is the same as something we see on a scan or on a physical examination. And the reason this is important is that unfortunately, patients can be 
persuaded to sign up for aggressive or painful or um, expensive treatments directed at a specific tissue. So I'm going to cut out that disc or realign or put this bone back into place or burn that nerve uh, when we're not certain that it causes the pain. So the risk here though is if you have this conversation, if you're under time pressure and you're feeling like you've got to get to the punchline quickly, you can end up saying to the person, you've got pain, it's nothing to do with anything in your back and which they can often interpret then as, so you're saying it's all in my head and then you've You've offended the patient, and, and you know it's it's a it's inaccurate and it's um it's a messy situation, and so this is one of those times where you really have to spend your time and I suppose listen to all the factors that are going on to a person's pain. And I strongly believe we've overemphasized the role of tissue damage, and yet I would suspect that in 50 years' time we'll still be acknowledging that tissue input, so the the state of your discs and joints and all that, has some role to play in pain. No, and that that focus on that, you know, what we call pathology, um, you know, is 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 a very old fashioned model. You know, it's that we'd hone in on one specific problem, and people still do it now that they pin all the pain down to one specific problem, and it's one, you know, this this small joint or this small joint being out of place, or you know, this leg length equality, inequality, or whatever. You know, there's lots of different, you know pathological problems that people have kind of given to patients and then they hone in on everything being this problem and then they you know may spend a lot of money getting this corrected and then they still have pain afterwards because many other factors weren't addressed and then it it then has a really negative consequence when a someone spent a lot of money and then i guess when b they're not any better afterwards uh they're, they're thinking oh well i'm obviously a you know, I've been written off by by my, you know, physio, chiropractor, osteopath, GP, whoever it might be. And then they get passed around and then, you know, people end up in this horrible situation where they haven't had their factors addressed and then they are labelled as a chronic pain patient and it and it can play can play horrible problems with, with with people's pain. Oh absolutely. And I guess we wanna we wanna try and understand as we're talking to a, a patient with pain how much, you know, what are the, what do we suspect is going on? So for example, if somebody says, look, I was riding a motorbike, I fell off, I know I felt a sudden pain in my wrist when I hit the ground, my wrist now looks crooked, you know, uh, going for an x-ray and MRI makes perfect sense because they didn't have pain, there wasn't an immediate trauma and there's a reason to suspect something is going on and their pain might be associated with tissue damage. So it's not that we're saying it's never associated or that there's never a role for imaging. But what we're saying is that um, you know, because that's that wrist can still go through a normal healing process. What we're more concerned about is when a pain has been there for a while, it becomes less likely that it's just about the tissues. And also, we know that you know from tissue studies that tissues take you know actually really in the grand scheme of things not that long to heal. Mm. You know, if you take out a muscle and you damage a muscle, you know whatever wherever that muscle may be, within six to twelve weeks, depending on that you know on that grade of that injury, the vast majority of it is is often pretty much well healed. Same with it's a, a fracture of the wrist. You know, you, yeah. so there although that it can be that tissue doesn't equal or tissue damage can mm. equal pain. But obviously with the back, there is something else going on that, you know, when someone does have an injury, people often associate it with, I'm always going to have a problem for life now. And they don't, they wouldn't have that same mentality with their wrist injury or an ankle sprain. Mm, so yeah. where do the, these myths kind of get perpetuated that are, you know, I've hurt my back now, I'm going to have back pain for life. Is that something which is just filtered down through, you know, old wives tales type thing? Or is it, uh, you know, is, is it that back pain does actually just take a little bit longer to heal? 
Yeah, like it's it's interesting, like, you know, there's this historical stories about railway spine and all these things where the back has got a bad rap, you know, and it clearly is associated, you know, all the studies suggest it's a big reason for sick leave and absenteeism. And we're not suggesting that it's a trivial occurrence, but, you know, um, the, nobody again has shown that tissue healing like bones and discs and ligaments, that it's different in the spine versus the knee or the shoulder or anywhere else. In the event of injury, the body is actually pretty smart at healing. Um, I suppose there is a suspicion, we don't fully understand it, but there's a suspicion that the back is viewed as being particularly vulnerable and then brittle and that once you injure it, you've got to be careful. And what we've seen, I suppose, if we were going to learn from other parts of the body, we're going to look at things like say Achilles tendon problems and hamstring injuries, and even, for example, osteopenia and you know bone mineral density problems. What we've seen with, from those conditions over the years is that we're realizing more and more to make it strong and protect it, we've got to load it. So we've got to put pressure gradually on your tendons, your muscles, your bones, and your body rather than crumbling will build up. Unfortunately, from a cultural point of view with back pain, the message is still all about avoidance and protection. So with kids in, in school, it's all about, well, we've got to make sure their school bag isn't heavy rather than focusing on making them strong and fit and keeping them healthy. If it's manual handling training, it's a, rather than talking about making people strong to lift, it's about, well, how do we avoid lifting? No, and, and that, that message is filtering down with, you know, if we go back to the ankle sprain analogy, which I know we, we've spoken about before, the message, you know, used to be, you know, rest up, don't put any weight on it for two weeks. But now, you know, even in, you know, you see people on the football pitch and, you know, getting down to the coach level and the parent level, people are now, okay, we need to start walking on it early and keep it within pain tolerance and, you know, start exercising and go back to what you can, when you can. These all messages are, you know, filtered down for the other body parts, but the back seems to get left out of that. And it seems to be, you have an injury or we need to be careful now. Or, or I'm, or I'm not going to go gardening for the next six weeks. I'm just going to lay off that, and I'm just going to rest up at home. When actually, it should be the converse. We should be getting back to what we, what we can do early on. And we know that people who get back to work and get back to their hobbies and lifestyles have a much better outcome long term than mm. if they rest up and if they, you know, have that of you know we call fear avoidance or avoid avoidance of movement and recovery, don't they? Yeah, and again, just to, to a certain extent, like. Rather than being the people, which physios have often been of telling people to stop doing things, just allowing them to do what they want and just checking, what do you want to do? And if there are, sometimes there'll be things I'll say, well, that's probably a bit too much this week, not because it's dangerous, but because you haven't done it in six months. But rather than saying, no, stop and be careful, just saying, well, what do you want to do? And if you want to do that in two months, well, how would we build up to that? And almost like in a, in a training and a fitness program kind of way. Yeah. And, and, and it is training and fitness. You know, when someone wants to start running again, if you took up running tomorrow, we even if you didn't have an injury, you wouldn't go out tomorrow and, and go for a 30 mile run. Hmm. You might start by doing couch to 5k and you might go for a, you know, a, a 15 minute run or a 20 minute run walk type thing. And that's what you'd associate. And we do the same when we're progressing patients back with their exercises, whether they want to get back into running or gardening, you know, we're not going to say go out and do three hours of gardening and, you know, rake up all of the leaves in your garden tomorrow. It's, just do 20 minutes and see how you feel and you go through some exercises afterwards and go for a walk. And, you know, and it's the same message we give to our patients as well, isn't it? So it's just installing that confidence. <laughs> exactly. So now um, fact four, which is scans are not very good at showing the cause of back pain. Now, this is something that we discussed kind of on, we dedicated a whole episode to uh, two episodes previous to this with Adam Dobson. So I think we'll 
kind of sweep over that one, unless there's anything that you would like to kind of add to that, because I know you listen to that, that no, show yeah. yourself. Uh, so yeah, nothing else to add other than, as we discussed just before we spoke here, I listened to that uh, podcast by Adam and it was excellent and he explained it better than I'm going to. Um, so I've, no, <laughs> I've nothing to add. Just go back to that episode. Good. Fantastic. Okay. Ep- um, I keep saying episode. Uh, fact five. Back pain with exercising and movement doesn't mean you're doing harm. So this kind of tails on a little bit to what we were just speaking about before. Now, most people, when they're doing a movement and they've or an exercise or an activity and they feel pain, they might think that, okay, I better stop doing that. You know, are they causing damage by doing a movement that's hurting or kind of, you know, bringing back their problem? So... I think we've got to kind of differentiate here between people who are pain-free and, you know, noticing some pain during an, doing an activity versus people who have pain on an ongoing basis. So if you or I are pain-free and we're doing something and it starts to get sore, I think it's reasonable that if it wasn't that important and you were getting quite sore, you would take a break from it and listen to your body because it's a new pain and it, you might have irritated something. That's probably quite different. And then you can evaluate how you feel tomorrow. That's quite different from people who have pain during most tasks, because something that happened before is we kept trying to aim for things being perfectly pain-free and that just meant avoiding or delaying or limiting people's activities far too much. Now, what the evidence tells us, there was a lovely systematic review done by Ben Smith and colleagues last year, and it showed that if you look at people doing exercise and if you compared some people who had pain during the exercise and some people who kept it completely pain-free, the pain-free group didn't do better. There was a suggestion actually that the people who had some pain during exercise actually did at least as well, maybe even a bit better. So it's we can say with confidence that if you are somebody who has pain on an ongoing basis, your exercise doesn't have to be pain-free. Um, and if we aim for that, we'll probably undercook people a bit. And uh, there's two things. Physically, obviously, we want to condition people, but also continuously monitoring for pain and having any little bit of pain is, is you know, mentally quite fatiguing so i would you know other people have used kind of traffic light systems where you tell people look if it reaches a certain red level you know you might want to stop or take a break but instead maybe look at how you feel that evening or the next day and just um monitor that on an ongoing basis because there isn't a number that we can say this is a safe amount but listen to the person's pain response the next day because they might have a lot of pain because they've irritated something mechanically or maybe they're a little bit concerned, but just listen to that pain response and then progress accordingly. So if you're waking up after doing your squats and your lunges, for example, the, the following day and you're struggling to get out of bed worse than the day before, maybe you've overcooked it a little bit, but that doesn't mean stop that exercise. It just might mean think about, okay, you were doing three sets of 20, maybe drop it down to one set of 20, for example. Yes. Um, so yeah. it's just about tailoring it for you. Yeah. And there might be different ways you can change it. So for example, maybe it is that you do less at the next time, or maybe you just say, except I'll be a little stiff and sore the next day, but instead of doing excess every day or every second day, I'll give myself a period, a longer period between heavier sets. Because even, you know, in terms of if we go back to the idea of tissue pathology, we've, there's a suggestion out that, that for example, degenerative tendons uh, don't respond to loaded exercise quite as well, and they get you know a bigger response in the short term. So they might need a little bit of a break between heavier sessions. So um, listen to your body, and then if you're sore, by all means, give yourself permission to not repeat the painful task straight away. 
But that doesn't mean you should therefore dwell on the fact that maybe you've done damage and maybe this is a big mistake and you're going to end up all the worse for it. It is perfectly normal, even if you take elite athletes who train very hard, it's perfectly normal that sometimes they're sore after doing more than they're used to. And we know that exercise and movement are actually good at, or, or, or can be quite good at reducing pain um, in some people. Is that just because we're freeing things up and we're moving around, or do we not know why that exercise is, is good for reducing pain? So exercise, the good here message here is exercise helps. That's really great, and we should encourage it because it helps pain a little bit, but it also helps pretty much everything else that we can study in terms of you know, um, mental health, and it's an important way for us to socialize and so on. But equally, it's not a panacea. It won't get rid of everything. The key reasons are it helps a bit, and there's very little evidence of danger or harm, and it can be cheap and sociable. Um, what we have really very little idea of is why something helps. Um, so, for example, we used to think it was about, well, exercise for back pain helped because it made my change my posture or made my back muscles stronger or you know change the, the way some specific muscles work. Uh, it doesn't look like it's that straightforward. It looks like getting doing exercise makes me feel a bit less worried about my back. I might spend a little bit less time on it. I myself specifically think we've probably underestimated the role of inflammation. Um, and again, like while you know, in my training, when we thought about people with inflammation, it was rheumatoid arthritis and specific kind of rheumatological conditions where their joints are all swollen. But for a lot of people with ongoing pain, there seems to be evidence of mild inflammation, which can be triggered by inactivity, but also stress, poor sleep, diet. And exercise seems to be something that can help us reset, you know, that degree of inflammation. And so I think in the next few years, we should probably start thinking more about the systemic effects of exercise on mental health and in systemic inflammation, rather than worrying so much about the tone or the strength of my paraspinal muscles in my lower back, for example. And also exercise gives people confidence. You know, if we are getting someone to pick up something off the floor, you know, often, you know, I'm sure you've done the same thing. You've pulled out a kettlebell or a, or a heavy weight and you've you kind of told a patient to pick it up. And they kind of think, oh, that's, oh, that's quite heavy. I don't think I could do that. But then when you highlight that that's the same weight or half the weight of their child or the same weight as their golf clubs or the weight of a bag of shopping, you know, they kind of think, oh, just because it's a weight. But if you then get people doing that and then you get people to lift up a weight, which they thought they could never do before, and they suddenly lifted it up 10 times and it hasn't caused any pain or, or kind of flared anything up, they know that actually they're going to be slightly less fearful when they next pick up their son or pick up their whatever you know uh, insert other heavy object here yeah. and um and you know there's been a lot of talk about you know the need for physios to kind of um adopt more psychological or psychosocial kind of um strategies to help patients but a lot of those strategies are still very much focused on movement and exposure so taking the thing you're afraid of and doing it or the mastery experience of doing something that was a struggle and getting back to it if i look at my own dad um he had a bad fall in the spring and got a pretty significant rotator cuff tear and was really struggling getting his arm moving. And it affected, he was a building contractor and, and a farmer and being physically active and strong was a big part of, I think, what made him feel like he wasn't a feeble old man. And he was really struggling physically um, doing things and it was starting to get a bit better. But at some point in the early summer, um, we cut peat we call it turf so you know uh, fuel in the in the bogs we'll say in the summer and he went to the bog and he basically filled the tractor of turf same as he would any other year 
And physically and psychologically, he was almost a new man after that, because that was the first objective thing he could say, well, I used to do that, you know, last year, and it was no problem. And this year, I was able to do it. So therefore, you know, I can't be finished, you know, and so having a sense of, well, you know, if I'm able to do this, I can't be that bad. And I think we can come back to that with patience. I can, you know, reassure you, oh, look, you're doing really well and you're getting strong, but that's not the same as actually doing it and, sh- and experiencing that I'm okay. That's that's very good news about your dad. And I bet he slept well that night. You know, he probably for the last few weeks before was probably worried about doing that particular activity and then he did it and then he probably had a really good night's sleep. So there's so many other factors as well that play into that. Absolutely. And, and again, I don't think any amount of reassurance or patronising from me would have had the same benefit or, or effect on Good. And that, I mean, that's a lot of weight as well. You know, if you think about how many reps and how much weight he did over that time, you're not going to recreate that with a TheraBand. Oh, you know, yeah, that absolutely. has to be, you know. And being honest, I don't think if you analyzed it, you would say it was an optimum strength conditioning program, you know. But no. there was a whole series of factors in terms of like satisfaction and sense of self. And so, for example, I would say it's probably likely, I didn't even check, I'd say it was probably likely he was a bit stiff and sore on his shoulder the next day. But how he interpreted that was probably more like that's normal when you when you work as opposed to it being a negative. And that type of activity could be anything, I guess, for, okay. for patients. So, you know, getting out and trying something, whether that is a, a round of golf or whether it's, you know, folding up some laundry, you know, whatever, if you have a, you know, bad back, standing at an ironing board can be quite quite painful, you know, for, for certain periods. So I guess just trying things and just experimenting is, is healthy to do and, and, and testing your limits a little bit within reason. Yeah, and without going off on topic too much, I've just finished a book chapter with um, Rachel Chester's on shoulder pain, a biosexual approach to shoulder pain and Rachel Chester and Tamara Pincus, the psychologist, and Lisbeth, another uh, therapist from the Netherlands. And it was interesting, we looked at cases and uh, case studies and specifically looking at examples of the context of exercise. And for example, patients where they hated exercise, but they loved playing lawn bowls and they didn't view that as exercise, even though that was exercise in the shoulder every bit as much. And other people who um, were very compliant with exercise, but hated it. And part of their therapy was almost removing themselves from stuff they hated, including exercise and re-engaging with the stuff that makes them feel good. And what makes you feel good, you know, mightn't always be the same as me. And while I'm, you know, on a big picture scale, we want to encourage people to do healthy things, you know, and if we were, you know, I don't mean that to sound too moralistic, but we want people to eat well, sleep well, exercise. But sometimes being healthy involves doing some of the unhealthy things, like eating some of the foods and drinking some of the things that we might like as well. You know, it's a healthy life isn't necessarily the life of a monk. Yeah. No, I, I couldn't agree more. And we all like a you know a nice glass of wine now and again, I guess. So that's always a, always re- reassuring to hear. Exactly. So I guess for people that are listening as well, and if you are hating your exercise you know go back to who gave it to you and you know talk about is there anything which you anything else which you can do you know how can how can they bring in some of the elements of exercise or activities that you actually enjoy if you're hating doing glute bridges and squats you know tell them there are other things which you can do that might you know have an impact and uh have have just as good impact because of all the things that we've just discussed so speak to your healthcare professional and uh, i'm sure there's lots of other things which you can do if you're hating your current exercise regime because we're not saying it has to be easy but i don't know any physios or doctors who on an ongoing basis continue to do exercises they hate you know it's got to have it's got to be at least tolerable. And if we want to keep it going in the medium term, at least some bit enjoyable. 
No. I'm trying to like running at the moment. I'm I'm really I'm 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 trying. I'm 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 getting there. I just <laughs> decided, yeah. but it's slowly. I'm slowly appreciating yeah, it, but it's yeah. taking a long time. But uh, but again, I wouldn't see it as a failure if you decided not to help with this. I'm going back to doing something no. else. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> okay. N- number six. Again, another common one. We have spoken a little bit about this on with with uh, Sam Spinelli on a previous back pain myths we did, but I'd quite like to talk a little bit around this one because we only briefly touched on it. And that's so fact number six, back pain is not caused by poor posture. Now, I'm sure there are a lot of people listening to that who who have, you know, jaws open, drop the cup of tea and go, what do you mean? Well, I get bad posture when I sit poorly, my back hurts, you know. So are you saying that there's there's not a correlation between posture and back pain or? So there might be, if we want to use the word correlation, there might be times where if I cert- certain way, I might get sore. So, for example, I don't normally sit very upright. I'm probably... I'm pretty sure that if I sat bolt upright for, you know, eight hours today, I might get some soreness, um, you know, by the end of the day. But actually, you know, um, that just shows you can make yourself a bit sore. What I'm particularly interested in is people who get back pain that doesn't get better and posture doesn't seem to be a factor, particularly though the idea of poor posture or slouched posture, what I would call relaxed posture. Now, if we're going to talk about when I... I did my PhD on sitting posture. So when I'm in a public forum and I tell people I did my PhD on sitting posture, almost instinctively half the room sit up straight as if I'm about to be the posture police, you know, tutting at their, their sloppy posture. But what we have to remember with posture is a lot of the beliefs around posture came from aesthetics, the idea of this is what it's like to sit like if you're a lady and if you would deport yourself properly and if you want to look either attractive to somebody, a potential partner, or to look suitably confident and assertive in an interview. And so if somebody is going to, um, for example, on a first date or to a job interview, there might be reasons why you'll sit a certain way to look confident or assertive or interested in all the rest of it. But none of those things are connected to pain. And when we want to think about um, the role of posture and pain, there probably isn't a relationship in terms of it causing pain. And then when it is connected, counterintuitively, it seems to be more about people with pain being too upright, too bold, uh, too stiff, too rigid, too careful. So um, I make one of the questions I ask people with pain, for example, who I think are spending too much time running about posture, is I ask them, how often do you think about your posture? And they'll say things like all the time, or I'm, you know, I'm consciously checking it. And I'll ask them, how often is your husband or wife thinking about it? And they'll say, oh, never. And it's a bit like things like sleep. If you ask people who sleep well, how do you go to sleep? They have no idea. What position do you sleep in? I have no idea. I just fall in the bit. Whereas when you're in pain, you can get, you're truly uncomfortable, but we can get caught in a cycle of analyzing everything. What am I doing when I'm sitting? What am I eating? What way am I rolling in bed? And what we've got to try and get people to think about is how much time is it worth? How much time and attention is it worth spending thinking about posture as opposed to all the other things? Because we're not saying that strong muscles aren't good. Strength is good. Fitness is good. But no strengthening program is based on tension and holding yourself rigid. So the example I often give people is that if you wanted to make your biceps strong or your legs strong, you wouldn't go around holding a tense all the time. You'd go to the gym, lift something heavy, and then forget about it and come back in two or three days time and lift it heavy again. And unfortunately, we've got into the habit of telling people with their back, don't ever lift anything heavy because that might make it strong, you could say. Don't ever lift anything heavy, but just go around worrying about it and keeping it tense all the time. And we shouldn't be surprised then that patients end up becoming deconditioned and a little bit hypervigilant or, or too concerned about their back. 
And that's why people often feel very stiff when they have been spent, you know, they think their back pain's sore, or that they, sorry, they think their back's sore or their back is sore, sorry, and they sit up the whole day. Mm-hmm. And they, they've been trying to sit in this perfect posture while, while, whilst they've been sat there, but they're holding everything rigid and very stiff. And apologies if I'm quoting you back to you, but I remember reading a, a, a journal, someone, a, a paper that someone said or a blog post, and they said one of the most important things you can say to a patient is that it's okay to slouch. And when you do, it's you say to patients, actually, I don't mind if you sit you sit down a bit. And actually, you know, every so often, sit slouched and then sit up again and then slouch again and then stand up and then have a walk. And that ever-changing posture is actually the lack of movement that, you know, is the problem, whereas the, the moving is what we need to be doing more of. Yeah, and again, I think a part of it comes back to, this is a general principle that rather than enforcing rigid rules on patients we should listen to what they're saying one of the things we teach students at a very early age is ask about aggravating and easing factors what's making your pain better and your pain worse and if the patient is saying certain things are consistently making my pain better or worse well then listen to them they're probably not lying and so embrace that and i will for sure i'll see meet some patients where they say if i sit upright or i put a pillow behind my back it helps great well then use that we're not trying to ban that But unfortunately, we see loads of patients where they say, well, I'm trying to sit properly and I bought a very hard chair to force myself to sit up. And then you ask them what helps you and and they'll say, well, if I slouch down or if I pull my knees up to my chest, it helps, uh, which is the opposite of what they're trying to do. So it is okay to slouch, I think is the takeaway for for that. Yeah. And in a general principle, it's okay to do what feels good for your body. Yeah. Yeah. Except maybe in a job interview, you're allowed to sit yes. up straight for that so 15 minutes to... to... <laughs> job, job interview, yeah, you know, first dates, those kind of things, you might have to conform with societal expectations. Brilliant. Number seven, back pain is not caused by a weak core. Now, this was last week's episode with Greg Lehman, so I think we will um, skip over the, the weak core episode, which we spoke about, again, at, at length, and Greg did a very good job of that. And let's go straight on to number eight, uh, which is backs do not wear out with everyday loading and bending. Now, did, are you referring to people that do lots of manual labor and, you know, working like that who assume that they have back pain because of it? Is that is that the type of population which you mean by this? Or is this just people that lift a lot of weight? Uh, yeah, it could apply to both. Just to follow up on the weak core one, I haven't listened to Greg's one yet, but I'm sure that'll be good value. Um, so uh, yeah. Yeah, I reckon that we will worth a listen. Um, he's a very smart and entertaining guy. Um, on the bending and loading, so this is right up there with the posture, the idea that I got back pain because of too much bending, too much loading. Um, so nurses will think that that's the reason they get back pain, whereas it looks like there's much more other important factors. Now, um, if I, I'll come back to the people who do very heavy lifting in a, in a short period. I and mean, you've got to remember in Western societies, that's getting much smaller. But what we'll often um, hear people say is that I have pain and therefore it must be down to the amount of bending and loading I'm doing. But all the reviews tell us that, look, everybody gets back pain at some point. But the amount of people who get back pain who work in jobs involving lots of bending and lifting, that does happen. These people do get back pain, but it's no more than people who sit all day or stand all day. So it doesn't look like it's the big thing. So for me, if I give, I suppose the examples that stand out to me is for a period of time there, I ended up seeing quite a few nurses with back pain. And a common story I was hearing was nurses saying, look, I'm getting back pain. It must be because of the bending and lifting. So what I've done is I've switched to a different shift, typically a night shift where now there's no bending and lifting. And typically their back pain got worse and they were totally confused by this because now they weren't doing any bending and lifting, but their pain was worse. But the shift to nighttime meant their sleep schedule was disrupted. 
they're um, scheduled for picking up the kids after work and all that kind of stuff. Their whole lot, work life was much more chaotic. And so if, if somebody's going to turn their life upside down, change their work shifts, you want to make sure that it's definitely about the bending and the loading and the lifting. And when I look at a lot of those nurses, what I see is higher levels of work stress, um, poor job control, still very subservient a lot of the time to medical personnel. Um, in, in their long work days, they tend to work, say, 12-hour shifts a lot of the time. Physical activity among nurses, very poor. High rates of smoking, high rates of um, kind of poor health in general. And so they're the kind of things I think I'd be focusing on if I was going to do an intervention in, in for example, a group who would deem themselves to be at risk because of loading and bending. Now, if I go to a different population, maybe manual construction workers who are doing lots more loading and bending and lifting, again, we can say with some confidence your back isn't wearing out, but you are likely to get some back pain. So if it's athletes, for example, like rowers who do lots of um, spinal loading, when they're training very heavy in a heavy training cycle, they get more back pain. But again, it's not because it's wearing out. They're just putting more pressure on their body. What we've got to be careful of is though that we take people and if you're going to be doing a heavy job that you're trained for it so for example sometimes we'll have people where they get their back you know the back gets sore and we return to them to a work setting where they're not physically conditioned for it and it's important that my fitness matches the demands of the task i'm going to be doing now i'm in the fortunate situation that my job involves sitting on my backside quite a bit of the day and then i'll be doing some movement and all the rest of it but it's on the lighter end of it so the amount of strength I need for my job isn't enough to keep me healthy, but you know, the demands are low. In contrast, I have family and friends who will work in construction and do other very physically demanding jobs. And it's important that we make them strong enough to do it. But it looks like practicing the stuff you do is actually good for, for your spine rather than being bad. So going back to your gardening analogy, if you, if you get back being gardening, the solution is not to avoid it. The solution is to practice it and do it more regularly and get good at it. So it's like doing any any exercise. If you see that activity that's causing pain, whether that's laying a patio or construction, you know, and, and you're getting rid of back pain, you're not damaging it any more than if you went for a run and you know you weren't used to running and your ankle or your knee started to hurt a bit. You wouldn't think that you're wearing out your knees necessarily, or people, I'm sure some people might do, but you know you wouldn't necessarily jump to that conclusion. It'd just be that you're not used to running. Yeah, and um, and you know it's, you have to train and be, you have to increase your capacity, I guess, to be able to do that activity. Because of course, like you know, it's possible that somebody's done something really ridiculous and has actually injured their body. But I think the gardening analogy, for example. Um, I was out at the weekend tidying up things before the winter, tidying up around the yard. And because I'm a softie that doesn't do much hand, manual labor, I got kind of some calluses and some blisters on my fingers. Um, so have I damaged my body? Well, there is some superficial skin damage, but it, does that mean it won't heal? No, it'll heal fine. Does it mean I should never do it again? No. But if I... First of all, it's not a big part of my life. It's not important. But if I was going to try and prevent my hand getting blisters... I could get gloves, but also I could practice doing it regularly and then my body will adapt. And that's what we see when people start running. Like you said, if you get sore when you've suddenly taken up running in your knees, you know, some people will believe it's because running doesn't suit them or because it's dangerous, but it's most likely you haven't done that and you've got to just build up to it gradually. And if, if you have no interest in it, fine. But if it's important or you really like it, then we should practice it. No, and, and that gardening, gardening analogy, and that's where you know the likes of your, 
me and you you come in where we are you know okay what what does it look like when you're gardening are you bending are you lifting are you you know kneeling what does it look like and then coming up with exercises and workarounds obviously if that patient enjoys exercises to 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 help them manage it and doing you know a couple of sets of that each evening might actually help them increase their capacity to garden for a longer period without pain exactly exactly so are there any professions that actually do have you know, a chance of back issue, an increased chance of back issues. I know you kind of said construction. Is that the same everywhere? You know, so the, everyone going into construction? So there there are some professions that report higher rates of back pain and absenteeism. But the problems here are there's huge confounders because you see you see bigger differences between countries than you do between professions, which tells us a little bit about, about healthcare systems and societal beliefs and access to healthcare and all that. And also, even if we compared occupations, if you looked at, for example, without trying to stereotype, a group of, say, um, medical consultants, university professors uh, at one level, and maybe what they might call blue-collar workers and manual construction workers, if you got a difference in back pain incidence where it was slightly higher, let's say, in the manual workers, it's not just the physical bending that's different in that. There's a whole series of socioeconomic factors and job security factors that are different. So there are variations between occupations for sure, but they are not as big as people think. There is no occupational group that is immune to back pain. And for me, the big elephant in the room is the system-wide variations. So we were just looking at, the, uh, there's a study called the SHARE study across Europe, and the rates of pain between countries, like there's no comparison in terms of the incidence and the prevalence and the impact of pain between countries. And I doubt that there is something uniquely different about the people in Spain and Germany and Ireland that explains that other than a whole series of complicating factors around what's your healthcare system like, how easy is it to get access, what's your sick leave like, etc. So, you know, the chance, so you're saying if you're looking at two construction workers, one in Ireland, one in Australia, you might have, you know, much higher chance of having back pain in one country compared to another. Whereas if you are a nurse in one country, you might have more back pain in, in the opposite, yeah. for example. So it's, it's, and, it's really interesting. And, and again, you see, in, we have to come back again to that idea of like, what am I measuring? Because a lot of the time we're measuring things like um, sick leave and sick leave um, can be a lot of things like, for example, it's. You know, a lot of time when people are off on sick leave, it's not always for one symptom because people can feel like crap and they can have back pain and be highly stressed and be bullied at work and be struggling in their relationships. And the only one of those that's a legitimate um, sick leave a lot of the time is back pain. So that's the label that gets put down. And even if you look at the current COVID situation, one of the recurring concerns has been, what if you're somebody who's a contract worker who isn't entitled to sick leave? Will you come in if you have symptoms? And, you know, we've got in non-COVID times, we have situations where people can be penalized for getting better or penalized for, you know, not going back to work and so on. And we have to go back to, to paraphrase Norton Hadler, but go back to the idea of, you know, not penalizing people for getting better and not expecting them to prove that they are sick. So what we and, and that's a really big, that's going beyond treating a patient in a clinic and almost, you know, setting up your healthcare system. But if I, in Ireland, we have a real problem with the legal system going on far too long. Um, and essentially, if I have two patients coming in with back pain and in three years time, one of them is much better and the other one is not better, the person who is better will get penalized and get less financial compensation. And, you know, that I'm not sure that that's a good way to set up your system. And I'm not trying to say, therefore, that the person who isn't better is trying to gain the system. 
It's just that it's a poor way. That is not how you would set up a system if you were really interested in people getting better. So when we set up our, our, our healthcare system, we'll uh, we'll come to you for uh, for, for what we should be uh, should be asking them for. Then, because yeah. that's because healthcare no, that, healthcare that, that. is notoriously easy to reform. Yeah, oh, too right. Yeah, just give you maybe a hundred years time, but uh, but that's really interesting. So for people listening who are are in a certain profession and they they're assuming that they're going to have back pain because they're in that profession you know, that should give them some confidence that actually know. And, you know, if they have doubts about it, then speak to someone who knows about what they do or know about what exercises might be beneficial to them and they can start early on or, or it's not, not that it's ever too late to start, but they can, you know, and, you know, being strong and being capable to do your job is only going to help you in the long run. Because, you know, we'll, we'll typically see people where when you are sore, things like bending and that are hard, all we're saying is, well, we should practice the bending, get good at it, but also not forget all the other things that keep you healthy. And that can be sleep, stress, diet, the relationships around you, all that jazz. Yeah, the things that everyone knows about, you know, but uh, we have to hammer at home sometimes. Yeah. And, and it uh, is a bit of, you know, people have that attitude that, well, I could tell the physio this thing, but it's kind of irrelevant. So there's no need to get into it. I'll just tell him about the stuff that he needs to know about, which is the posture, the exercises I'm doing. And and that's relevant, but we, we want to try and to help our patients. We need to understand them in the big picture. No, yeah, good. So when we're asking weird questions about your sleep habits and, uh, and and what your diet's like, there is a there's a method to the madness. There's a reason behind it. Wonderful. Okay, so let's move on then. Last two, so we're on to number nine, which is pain flare-ups do not mean that you're damaging yourself. Now, I guess a flare-up is different to different people. Um, so that's probably where there's a little bit of difference in here. So do you want to kind of extrapolate on that? Maybe talk about why flare-ups happen and kind of go from there so i think um again the first thing to remember is that again i don't see a flare-up as being a rare or dangerous thing i think if you've had back pain uh intermittently for the last 20 years it, you are going to get some of these flare-ups or pain episodes intermittently again and again to remember that they can be triggered by both physical things and some of these other things and the message here is that if you get triggered by doing something physically that doesn't mean it's dangerous. So for example, if you've had a, to take it away from pain, if you've got a recurrent hamstring injury, it's common that you will re-injure it and it'll flare up when you do high speed running. And if you have an ankle injury, it's common you could sprain it again, running or you know landing and jumping. And that's a shame, it's painful, but it doesn't mean the treatment is to avoid it. And in fact, for most of those things, if it's a hamstring or an ankle, the cure is going back and gradually doing the stuff that's been problematic. So irrespective of whether it's a physical trigger or some of these other things that can be involved in triggers, explore it and then try and get on top of it. Often though, the emphasis is always on the physical things. And I would see at least as many people where the flares are associated with changes in their general health. So a change in work-life balance, sleep, stress, diet, and their environment around them. And again, it's not one or the other, it's the interaction of these. And in either case, whether it's because you did something physically different or whether I was a bit run down because I was working very busy with project deadlines, try not to beat people up for the fact that they are now a bit vulnerable and tell them, look, this is a shame. This happens. The good news is this is all modifiable and focus on building them up and building up their resilience rather than kind of thinking this is a disaster. So there's that balance. Empathizing with this is crap. It's a shame. It's annoying but it's not the end of the world. It's not a sign that this is a failure. We don't want to end up with people having one flare up, you know, three years after the last episode and thinking, well, this proves conservative rehab didn't work. I should therefore go for the surgery. That's really 
encouraging to hear then. So for the people that are listening that have, you know, had an episode, it's getting better. They've had then a, what they would class as a flare up. So that might be an, another week of pain, another few days of pain, another few hours of pain, I guess. That doesn't mean they're back to square one. It doesn't mean they're doing any more damage to it. And it doesn't mean that they've failed their their, their conservative treatment. Yeah, that's and I would, really good to I hear. would argue that if I was treating a patient, let's say I wouldn't be treating them all the time, but if I was seeing somebody over a course of three or four months, I don't wish them to have a flare-up, but if they have a flare-up in that period of time, it's generally good in that they can learn from it. Because rather than talking about the abstract thing, did you have the pain at a time of stress or poor sleep? We can look and say, right, you had the flare-up two days ago. Tell me what happened a few days beforehand and with better accuracy determine if there was particular triggers. Because, you know, people often don't remember previous trigger or flare-ups that well. But if it happened just two days ago... What was your sleep depth two days before? And tell me in detail about what was going on. And people don't argue with their own data so much then. If they can say, yes, this trigger, this flare-up was triggered by when I ran too much one day or when I was sleeping poorly because the kids were waking up with a fever a couple of nights, then they'll start to recognize those patterns. And they, they put two and two together. What about people that always have flare-ups after a particular activity? Say, you know, every time I wash up, it, it always irritates my back or, or, or certain activity. Is that similar to what we spoke about before, about that just capacity and they're not very good at doing that particular activity or are there many other factors? Yeah, so I think the key thing is, is it an unaccustomed activity? Because if it's something you're not used to, for sure it can happen. But I know, for example, there'll be times when I do something physically and I'll get some pain after it. And I, I'm pretty sure I did this exact same thing two weeks before that, and I didn't. And typically for me, that's when I'm doing it at a time when I'm tired or stiff or stressed starting out. So um, if it's something you're, you know, that you're doing on a repeated basis, was there something different about your health or your tension or your vulnerability going into it that makes it different? Because even if people say things like, well, you know, I hurt my back when I was ironing, and every time I hurt it, it's ironing, you know, that's a consistent pattern. But is it still that every time you iron, you get back pain? Because it rarely is that. Even if, you know, the trigger is always ironing, ironing probably doesn't always trigger it. So what's different about the days when it does or doesn't, if that makes sense? So look at the physical trigger. We got to learn from that, come up with a strategy to get around it. But is it that black and white? Perhaps it is. But usually there are times when we can do that provocative activity, the run, the walk, the bend. And I didn't have the big pain flare up and why? Because there's something about that context that's different. And honestly, the context can be, I was tired going into it. It can be, well, you know, I was running, but instead of running with the guys who I enjoy, it was the guy who's annoying. You know, so lots of different things that can be factored in that. Or, or I was ironing and I was in a rush, it, you know, oh, that honestly, sort of thing. And, is, uh, yeah, I, late at night. I couldn't tell you how many times I've seen parents, mostly mothers, but not always, where they say, well, I was putting the kids in the back of the car. But they do that every day. But this day was the day the kids and didn't eat the breakfast in time or fighting with the kids or one of them you know threw up on their clothes just before they went back went out into the car and they're everybody's rushed and stressed and then they go to bend and put the baby into the back seat and then their back goes and of course there's a physical component to that but that tension when they're doing that task is partly explained by the context and then that doesn't mean never do that again, because then often people, if it is a physical trigger, people will be avoiding that activity. And then that comes back to the fear avoidance we spoke yeah. about before, and they, they are stopping yeah. doing whatever that activity uh, is. Yeah. And from the patient's point of view, like, you know, it's perfectly reasonable because as a society, 
the person has hurt their back and our solution has been, well, we'll take an MRI scan, we'll tell you you have a disc bulge or disc degeneration, therefore you should never do it again. So they're often being quite compliant when they adopt these fear avoidance behaviors. Whereas it's not that I would ever tell somebody, well, if it's hurting, you just keep forcing it. It's more around, well, let's look at helping you to bend in a way that's comfortable and twist in a way that's comfortable. And then let's look at why that day was different. And then sometimes the strategies there might be, you know, first of all, it might never happen again. Secondly, it might be getting fit and strong so you can bend and move comfortably. And sometimes it might be looking at, well, what's the schedule in the morning and how do we plan that a bit better? Yeah. And these people don't often think about them. You know, we said before that sleep is is so, so important, you know, and, uh, you know, when I've been in the situation, I have a nine month old at the moment and, you know, my sleep in the last nine months has been the worst it's ever been in the last, you know, how old am I? Yeah, Yeah. nearely over over 30, 30 plus years. Yeah. I was just (laughs) going to say, Rob, before you said about the baby and congrats, that there's nothing like having small kids to make you kind of step back and appreciate the value of good sleep. But, uh, and equally, and it can be negative, obviously, you can be pretty exhausted and feel pretty wretched. But then you can learn from it that actually uh, you can survive in the short term on small amount of sleep. And there's no need to catastrophize a couple of bad nights sleep because, you know, a bit of coffee, a bit of adrenaline, you can make it through. But ongoing persistent sleep deprivation is really tough. Oh, it's horrible. There's nothing until you've had it. You don't, you can't understand it. <laughs> and anyone who has children that don't sleep understands. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, so number 10, and this is the one which, uh, again, I'm sure a lot of people would like to know more about. And... That is, you know, injections, surgeries, strong drugs aren't usually a cure. And there are a lot of people here who would probably disagree with that in terms of, because I know that's obviously a, is, is a sweeping statement, who listened to it, who said, well, I've taken certain medication, I feel better, or I had X surgery or X injection and uh, my back pain's gone. So can you elaborate a little bit more detail around, you know, kind of what this statement entails? Yeah, sure. So the key thing for me here, again, is remembering that this message is around people who have pain on an ongoing basis and who um, are really struggling, and we want long-term strategies to keep them healthy in the long term. So I I don't know anybody that thinks nobody should ever have any of the injections or surgery or medication. And in fact, this very morning, I saw a patient, a teenager, who one of the key parts of management I suggested was going and getting some pain relief and getting some... um, anti-inflammatory medication or something because the child is struggling with sleep is off school and there's a whole series of things that are worrying about a situation where the child can't cope won't weight bear on their limb isn't in school so these are not hard and fast rules but it's more around the fact that if you were going to say what's a good value proposition why where should we be investing we know that um all treatments have some cost even things like exercise that are very safe and very cheap there is still a cost in terms of the hassle and all the rest of it and even like simple equipment but all treatments should have a cost benefit um and in fairness to the kind of the biomedical treatments like the surgeries and the drugs and the injections they've been pretty well studied so we can say with some confidence that they don't work that well now again some people will get better after anything and some people do get better after surgeries and injections but it doesn't look like it's particularly impressive and because these things are expensive or have side effects um, we should save them for situations where they are very likely to help and we really have tried everything else first. Um, and so for that reason, all guidelines, not just me, but all the international guidelines in every continent now suggest that for persistent pains, such as back pain, we should prioritize things like non-pharmacological treatments, including explaining what's going on, exercise, healthy lifestyle approaches, and saving some of these other things for either 
really tricky cases. And again, the evidence there still isn't very impressive, but it's almost as a as the last spin of the wheel or as little adjuncts to help you if you can't cope. So for example, there will be times when I will suggest medications or even injections if people really aren't sleeping in the short term. So if you've got somebody with a terrible acute uh, radiating arm or leg pain, they can't sleep. Um, and especially if you take somebody then who is in a situation where it's really important that they get some sleep or can cope. So they've got a young child, they're self-employed, you know, the evidence that these things are amazingly effective still isn't there. But in the short term, you know, as a strategy to get them back on board, it's okay. The problem is sometimes we escalate all these drugs or procedures, but never put in the long-term strategies as well. And that's my biggest concern, that I'm not going to lose so much sleep if somebody gives somebody a bit of paracetamol or some anti-inflammatories or even some tramadol, if it was just buying some time to truly put in some good non-pharmacological care. But a lot of the time, these things are prescribed and nothing else changes other than ordering an MRI scan, which adds to the catastrophe. Yeah, see, see uh, previous Adam's episode. <laughs> so it's not that these never work. And I think that's a, a, a message for people that are listening. It's, we're not saying that, you know, surgery is never an option and it's never going to get any better. But overall, in the grand scheme of, you know, everybody with long term back pain, it's not always the best solution. Mm-hmm. So this isn't a it's not a cost saving issue. I know this was spoken about on a Facebook group recently, um, our Facebook group, sorry. And, you know, people saying, oh, that's just because it's the NHS trying to save money. And so they're not recommending surgery and recommending talking therapies and CBT and things like that because they're cheaper. And that's not the issue at all. Yeah. It's, it's not a cost saving issue. But it's, it's a yeah, but it's a good point you bring up, Rob, because it is a real concern that this could be seen as part of a cost-cutting agenda where we're denying people the good care and we're giving them the the kind of the cheap yellow back uh, crap in the meantime and and i suppose we've got to get across to people that the best care is this approach but that's a tricky balance you know it's pretty hard even if you look at uh, any kind of healthcare situation it's probably hard to explain to people some things that seem counterintuitive like why prevention isn't always better than cure or why more treatment isn't better so, so we, we shouldn't be seeing, you know, the next medication or the injection and the surgery as the gold standard of care. It's not like you have to fail of all these other things and then you get the good stuff. Those are just some other options when actually in your case, you know, going back a step and removing some things and going back to some more conservative management might actually brought me be or more likely be more beneficial in your case, I guess. Yeah, like we'll say, my sense is still that if you looked at people who have been signed up for surgery for back pain, uh, let's say if there was 100 my sense is that it's a minority of them that would have got what we'll call comprehensive conservative rehab, looking at a you know a physical exercise program and a comprehensive cognitive and lifestyle program. I think that's still the minority. And you still have a lot of countries where a patient who, even if they're interested in this approach, if they're interested in going down the exercise and lifestyle approach, they'll have to pay for that out of their own pocket, but their insurance company or the government will pay for the arthroscopy or the MRI scan and the injections and the medications. So again, yeah. sometimes we have to focus our energies on the patients who need to better understand the problem, but actually the system can be a lot of the barrier as well. Exactly. So then I guess the last point on that then would be for someone that's listening to this who's currently on a wait list for surgery or an injection and, you know, Mrs. Smith might be sat here now thinking, well, I'm having a discectomy tomorrow or a fusion or whatever it might be, whatever the surgery might be that might not be the most helpful message for her to hear. Mm. Um, you know, we kind of said that it's, you know, overall people don't have great outcomes. What would you kind of, you know, what would you say to, 
someone like that? Or I could say, first of all, obviously, you know, start off with the cliche that everybody's different. And it could be confusing and frustrating and annoying to hear this kind of a, a line that actually surgery can be too common and ineffective for some people. Um, I think it's very likely, as I said, there's some people out there who need surgery. Um, but it's very likely many of them are trying trying surgery out of desperation because we've tried everything else and they're not getting any better. So if there was somebody listening to this who was considering having a surgery, my message would be to talk to their doctor or even consider themselves um, if they're on the right path. So for example, asking their doctor, is, uh, is there a sign it's serious, like a red flag, like a cancer? Because if there was, you should go down that path. Or asking their doctor, look, have I the kind of tissue damage that's not normally seen on an MRI scan of my age, because possibly they have, but there is a lot of evidence out there that people are thinking that routine changes on tissues are um, something to be worried about. And they're asking themselves, am I happy enough that other than the pain, all the other parts of my health are, in, are you know, under control? Because if somebody really was saying, look, I've got this terrible back and leg pain, but I'm sleeping perfectly, my mental health is fine, my fitness is fine, my diet's fine, my work-life balance is fine, well, you know, we have nothing left to work on. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people out there where they have a lot of this pain and these other things. And they make the assumption that, well, the pain is causing the rest of these things and, and not the other way around. And these things are usually connected. So make sure before you go into it that we try and save the surgery, not because it's cost-saving, as you said, but save the surgery for the ones where it's likely to help. And that's typically the, the serious red flag pathologies or the ones where we've tried everything else and it's now a reasonable kind of um, gamble to try the surgery. And we know that those patients will actually then, you know, if they've got those and they have them, then they actually do have quite good outcomes. Is that fair in saying? It's, it's, they do better than the ones who are inappropriate. So, for example, there was a nice big study done on knee replacements in Victoria just a couple of years ago. And they found that the people who did better after the knee replacement were the ones where they had a bad x-ray. So, you know, truly, truly looked worse than the, the other group where they had good mental health. So in other words, the ones with poor mental health didn't do it as well and where they weren't morbidly obese. So again, if you were going to that surgery where my x-ray didn't look too bad, that was a warning. Or if you were morbidly obese, that's a warning. Or if you had very poor mental health. So again, we're trying to make sure there's not other things that would be a better investment. And so if you're going in saying this pain is all about look the pain, the scan and everything else is um, is looking okay, well, then it's a bit more likely that you'll do well. Is, is there any research on patients' beliefs about outcomes of surgeries, um, about, you know, what they think is, is happening or what they think the outcome might be of surgery and then maybe it not being what they feel and then ending off worse? Is there anything, are you aware of any research in that there's, area? There's bits around like recovery expectations and their preferences and generally patients prefer or have high expectations of some of the biomedical stuff, both surgical and, and non-surgical for injections and scans and, and pills and so on. So there's some of that out there. There's also been a couple of interesting studies where they've shown the importance of convincing patients that the surgery was effective. So there was one study done on disc uh, surgery, where in half the group, they showed them what they said was the piece of the disc they took out. So they did the surgery, and then they brought them a little test tube saying, look, this is the bit of disc I took out, and we got it, and don't worry, this will be, it's going to be all better. Now, the procedure was the same in both groups, but the group who were shown the successfully removed disc did better in terms of their pain outcomes. So irrespective, my, my take from that is that irrespective of which treatment you're offering people, 
it's important you're not lying to people, but you kind of reassure them that I am confident this is the right way to go. Amazing. So that confidence in your surgeon and, and making sure that people have done their or, you know, listeners have done their homework about, you know, they've exhausted all the options and they know exactly what's happening. And, you know, they've had that, you know, hard conversation probably with a with a surgeon. We know that, you know, many um, being very generalist, you know, often these consultants can be very busy and, you know, they don't always have a lot of time for an hour long conversation. Um, so having that hard conversation is, is a vital part before you go down that, go yes, down that absolutely. route. And so taking the time to understand what what their expectations are is key. Fantastic. Well, that kind of wraps up today's episode with uh, all, all, all 10 points of those. Um, that's been a, you know, a, a whirlwind tour of those 10, 10 topics. I know that we could have done two, epi- you know, spoken for two hours on each one of those topics. So thank you for, you know, bearing with us and, and going through. I'm sure you could have said a lot more on all of that. So uh, thank you for, keep, for no, keeping it brief uh, for, for, for our listeners. No, it's been good. And, uh, and we've already probably taken up quite a bit of time, but that was really good. And uh, I hope there was some value in it for people. Fantastic. Well, thank you ever so much for joining us. We will post all the links to this study and, and the, 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 infogram, the infographic sorry, in, in the show notes. Is there anything else you would like to, to plug before we finish? Uh, where can people find you, find more about you? So, um, as we've said, I work at the University of Limerick. I'll be on the website there. We have a website for well, clinicians and patients called pain-ed.com. And there's a, in particular, there's a section on that called patient stories where patients talk about their experience of pain, which can be useful because I think sometimes it helps people find someone they can relate to. So rather than having some meaningless academic talk about pain, this is a real patient talking about their recovery from pain. No, and that's a fantastic resource. I've been on it myself and I've looked at those studies and if you're, you can you can find yourself in lots of those stories. So uh, some really good reassurance for, for, from a lot of those. Lovely, so thanks, well, thanks a million Rob and thanks, to, thanks again for the opportunity. No worries. Thank you, Everson, for joining us. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Take care, and we will catch you on the next one.